welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 3, a special message about responding to the authority of Christ. This is taken out of the encounter that John the Baptist had with his disciples as Christ's ministry was increasing. Some of John's disciples came to him and questioned him about how he felt about that. So let us hear the word of God together. John three twenty six. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Verse 30, John answered, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. This is God's holy word. May its truth impact our hearts. You can be seated. Thank you so much. I want to remind you that today is, uh, is a communion Sunday, and we'll be finishing this message by engaging in communion together. If you didn't, and you're here in the worship center, and you didn't pick up your communion uh, material from the table in our foyer, you can be excused to get up. I won't mind. And you can go and get that in case you missed it. If you're, of course, viewing with us and worshiping with us online, encourage you to prepare appropriate materials for the receiving of communion as you're led where you are. I want to bring a message to you today that I have, uh, well, for the last few years, I've I've taken time in the the first Sunday of the new year to... uh, to bring you a message of reminder or challenge about the year into which the Lord is leading us. So this is what we call in our ministry a standalone message about that. Next week, I'll be moving back into Hebrews 11, the great faith stories of that chapter. It's going to be an exciting message about the patriarchs, the old leaders of Israel, and how they faced the future. How appropriate as we face an uncertain future as believers. So it's going to be a great time back in Hebrews 11. But today we're in John chapter 3 because it's a message about authority and truth. And both of those are certainly points of battle today in our society. And they're points of question for Christians. Authority and truth. I think it's safe to say that we're in a crisis of authority today. It's been building in our society for generations. We're in a crisis of authority, not that we don't know what authority is, 
We do. The problem is we have no respect for authority in our culture of any type. When I'm talking about ultimate authority, revealed authority, ultimate moral truth, ultimate guidance in regard to truth and falsehood. Our society is suffering from this, and it wonders out loud at the damage that's being wrought because of our confusion and our ignoring of authority particularly divine authority. Time magazine some time ago had a cover story, and here was the headline. What's wrong with our ethics? Hypocrisy and greed unsettle a nation's soul. There's damage going on, and our commentators see it. The New Republic magazine some time ago had this headline on its cover. America, where nothing is true and anything goes. How clearly that describes what's, what is going on in our society. We've trivialized authority in every way. To trivialize something means to regard it as commonplace, to, to bring it down from its high level and just make it of, of no importance. The Latin word trivial, or the word trivial in our language comes from the Latin word, which meant the meeting of three roads, trivium. And it meant to take something and make it as commonplace as everything else, to give it no importance. So it was like you were sitting at a crossroads, and if you sat at the crossroads of three highways all day long, you'd see a little bit of everything, twice. And nothing would surprise you, and nothing would have any significance. Trivialization of authority. And particularly when it comes to revealed truth that our society has always believed about God, we have made little what God intended to be big haven't we? Now, to trivialize authority is really simply to reject it. It's rejecting it in an indirect way. To trivialize authority is to reject it, but the problem is when when mankind rejects God's authority, he inevitably damages himself. Think about it. He breaks the divine design that was given to lead his moral life, his private life, and his social life. And uncontrolled behavior always follows because man, as a sinner, rebels against all authority. And so destruction comes of everything that's important. You think about it. Isaiah chapter 1 describes this. God spoke to Israel after they went through their several generations of trivializing his word and mixing it with all kinds of other voices and ignoring God and trivializing his commands. They had fallen into a state of national destruction. And he says to them in Isaiah 1, 5, God appeals to them to come back to his truth because living without his truth was destroying their nation. He says in Ephesians 1, 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. They've rejected his authority. What's the result? Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Listen to this. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What happens to a culture that rejects God's authority and trivializes God's truth and rejects his leading in their moral lives? Nothing but damage. Damage. 
From the foot to the head, the whole world, the whole society, every dimension of human life suffers. And God says there will not be healing until you turn back to him. Now, in an atmosphere like that, which our society is, is, is moving headlong into and has for generations, God's people should shine as divinely different, shouldn't they? We should be the ones responding to God's authority and rejoicing under it. But instead, too often, we're following, in, we're following in the footsteps of the culture and letting the currents of the culture guide us in our own trivialization of God's authority. Lots of examples. One that struck me some time ago as I was reading uh, in different research uh, studies about the church. The Barna Group did a study some time ago that revealed when evangelical parents were asked what was the most important hope they had for their school-aged children, the salvation of their children came in third place. It came in behind their hope that their kids would get a good job and become happily married. I don't know about that math to you, but that math to me is completely broken. We've let the currents of our culture guide us into personal peace and affluence and hoping that that and seeing that as the greatest goal in the Christian life. That is not the greatest goal. Knowing him, being saved and knowing him and growing in him is all that God has as a passion for us. Everything else should take second and third place. You see, the most powerful witness Christians can have in our world is to be a people that honor the authority of God who put Jesus first. That's compelling and necessary for us to have a witness, and it's eroding in our time. He deserves to be first in our lives, so in a way we have to relearn this because we're in a cultural compression chamber of all kinds of values that, that invade us constantly now because of the media lockdown that we're in. And our lives and opinions are being silently shaped in so many directions moving against God's authority. We have to be intentional about resisting that more now this year than ever. Now, John the Baptist was in a changing time, but he had no problem committing the changes in his time to the changeless Christ. He had no problem making his commitment to Jesus and Christ's authority. And he left us a testimony in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, that I'll draw from this morning. And he, he tells us three ageless reasons why Jesus must be first, why his authority must be first. And they all have to do with one overriding fact, and that is that Jesus communicated truth in a powerful way, in a singular way. And if he communicates truth like no other truth teller, he should have ultimate authority, shouldn't he? And so we're going to look at this. You could say that Jesus spoke total truth. Because of that, he should have total authority in my life and over every other influence in my life. You know, Jesus Christ lived as the truth. He never uttered a word that wasn't sourced in it. In fact, in John 14, 6, he declared about himself, Jesus said, I am the way to God and the truth. Everything about truth is Jesus Christ. He controlled every domain of truth. He lived out of the truth. He reflected the truth. He spoke the truth. He lived the truth. He, he was the truth, and he is the truth today. There was never any falsehood in him. That's why when he was betrayed, his enemies had to invent untruths and put them in his mouth. They could betray him only with false accusations. 
because not one convicting word could be found in his entire life to hold him on. Could that be true of you or me? I don't think so. George Bernard Shaw was a a skeptic and a a British playwright about a hundred years ago or so. He knew lots of famous people, and he had a dim view of humanity. He didn't have any idea about people being noble. And one day he decided to play a joke on 10 of his friends. He sent them all a personal note that said this, Flee, you've been found out. He intended it as a joke. But within a week, eight of the ten had left town. He knew something about human nature that a lot of us don't want to admit. A lot of us are shrouded. All of us are shrouded with untruths we've spoken and untruths we've lived. None of us has a claim on the truth. Only Jesus lived in perfection. Jesus did live in the truth and he proclaimed it. And so I want to, in the body of this message, just take John's words and describe the three ways that John tells us Jesus should be first. And it all comes out of this truth-telling identity. Here's the first one. John teaches us here that Jesus must be first because he speaks divinely sourced truth. This is verses 30 and 31. John says, He, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Immediately you can see that the passage makes distinctions. It draws differences. Particularly the differences are between Jesus Christ and every other human teacher, including John. Though John's message was authentic and he was preaching in obedience to God, there was humanity and human flaw even in his message and in his life and in his delivery. But in contrast to that, Christ's message always has been and always will be completely perfect. He contrasts Christ with every other teacher who's ever lived or who will ever live. And he talks about them as speaking in an earthly way. See, due to the fall, this earthly system is totally compromised. No matter how sensible or practical its philosophies sound, there's a, there's a domain of sin in all of it. There's a domain of deception in the best of it. It may seem trustworthy, but there is a mixture of error in every human teacher's words. And John makes a distinction about how Christ taught and how every other human teacher has taught. They may be compelling, but you need to be wise about everything that they teach. You see, if one small dimension isn't what it's supposed to be, you can be damaged by what you hear. In the, in the medical world and in the physical life, this is true about small errors that may be almost 100% the cure you need, but not completely. I had a pastor friend in Southern California when I was there, and uh, he developed a, a rare blood cancer. And he needed transfusions from time to time to help him through his very serious treatment program. The trouble was, as I remember, he had the most rare blood type that there is. You may not know this, of the many blood types, there's AB positive, which quite a few people have, but there's AB negative, which only 0.6% of our population has. It's the rarest blood type on the planet. He had that. 
And so for the transfusions to be available to him, it was always a long wait. And he had other issues that had to be screened out to make, that made it even more specific. And I remember him waiting long periods of time and refusing every other donor. It was, he was committed to the fact that he knew he needed that 0.6% of match. He was never going to take a chance on what was infused into his system because it could end his life. In the same way, when it comes to truth dimensions, the scripture says in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And that's so true about human truth systems. There is a way that seems right to to human thinking, to our earthly reasoning, to our earthly way, John describes it in verse 31. But the end can be death. You've got to be careful about who and what you believe now more than ever. Our society, for example, has been largely shaped in what you walk through every day by two particular individuals who had part of it right, but a big part of it wrong. William James was uh, a a social thinker and psychological commentator of a hundred years ago or so. And he had some things right when he talked. He was a skeptic of religion and and he analyzed what we we should really believe. He was a philosopher. He had one thing right in that he said, you ought to be critical about what you believe. Don't just accept it hook, line, and sinker. Think it through. And I think that's a valid point of view. By the way, I was critical when I finally accepted the reality of the scriptures. They rang true for me. This Bible can withstand critical thinking. So William James was right about being critical about what you believe. But there was a strain of falsehood in what he taught, too. He was wrong in the sense that he popularized the idea that nothing is true unless it works. If it doesn't produce a practical result, if it doesn't work, then it's not true. You don't have to follow it. That's complete error. In one move, he swept away all divine truth that might not make sense to natural man or that will not work in your life the way you want it to. That's a deadly poison. He is the reason why today, when you talk to a friend about the scripture and when you talk to a friend about Christ being the way of salvation, the unique and holy savior and God of the scriptures being the one and holy God, William James is one of the reasons why that friend pats you on the shoulder and says, well, that's okay if it works for you. But you see, my way works for me. And so whatever works for me is just as truthful as what works for you. Deadly poison in the system, wouldn't you admit? Deception. Behind so many conversations, and another person who's kind of the shadow walker of our American educational system and our American parenting system was a guy named John Dewey. Now, he came up with a lot of things that that perhaps had elements of truth about how children should be taught. He was a scientist of that. One of the things that he said that had some merit was he pointed out that children develop intellectually at their own pace and and they have to go through levels of learning and psychological development. And we ought to be aware of that as we educate kids. That part makes sense and that part could be applicable truth. But he was deadly wrong when he went further and he said, by the way, children should be raised without any restraints. They ought to be educated the way they want to be educated, and you shouldn't take any directive authority in their learning process or in their little lives. That's a deadly error. So a lot of what he said was true, but that stream of error has damaged American parenting and American education in incalculable ways. 
It's created a society where three-year-olds run 30-year-olds, and people say there's nothing wrong with that. But we wonder why we have now a society of 30-year-olds that are still living as three-year-olds. And why no one has the ability to speak truth into the life of a young person. Well, put that on the door of John Dewey, who said a lot of things right, but a deadly thing wrong. You see the examples. Now, we're immersed in a system of truth today that is coming at us at light speed. And it's filled of what John calls in verse 31, people thinking and speaking in an earthly way, compromised earthly wisdom, slamming into us, being legislated all around us. And you've got to actively resist that with divine truth, believer. You must become active about how you're managing the truth concepts that are coming at you. Romans 12, which was read earlier, describes this. Verse 2, Paul said to that church, do not be conformed to this world. The word world there in the Greek is cosmos, and it meant the system of thought. And the Greek also says, he said, basically, stop being conformed to this world system of thought, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here is the mental battle, the battle over truth issues, the battle over authority in every generation of the lives of believers. You see, there's two forces at play in this verse. There's a passive uh, power that comes over to you. Let's put it this way. You can either be passively conformed to earthly truth, and that's a power play from the outside. That's where the word, the world, he says, is constantly always pressuring you to conform to its truth system. Stop letting that happen, he says. It's a, it's a process, by the way, that will go on constantly. You can't stop the process. You need to start resisting the process. So there's, you either get passively conformed to earthly truth, which is a power play from the outside, or you actively choose to be transformed by divine truth, which is a power play from the inside. It's an act of the will as a Christian and as a Bible thinker. That's in the next phrase. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Notice you must take action. Notice you must fight the battle to renew your mind, which is already because of your old sin nature, still heading in the direction of the world and the flesh. And you need to develop a spirit that says, I'm going to test what I hear. That's what he says here in the next phrase. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the truth battle of every believer over every generation. But now in our hyperlinked, media exploded, completely flattened landscape of input where every authority claims to be right, every voice claims should be, it should be heard, we now more than ever must come and bow to the only voice that we are no, we know for certain must be heard, and that is the voice of Christ in our culture and in our lives. Jesus must be first because he speaks divinely sourced truth. He does not speak with any error, any deception, any falsehood, any weakness, any lack in what he says. We don't need to go anywhere else other than to the great source of truth we have in the scripture and through our walk with God. So you and I live, work, and study in an aggressively deceived and deceiving environment. 
when it comes to truth. Let me ask you, how are you doing and actively resisting this onslaught? How did you do over the last several months in actively resisting this onslaught upon your thinking? What disciplines did you practice this past year to ensure that the flow of God's truth and the presence of Christ has been dominant in your life? What disciplines do you believe you need to practice this year to put you in an aggressive position against the falsehoods of the culture, not just a passive position? Do you have an active habit of hiding the words of Christ in your mind and your heart? A statement I read recently by a pastor that I have benefited from in his writing talked about the fact that pastors more than ever need to have an intensified devotional life in the society that we're in. We need to be people that, that overstructure our lives to be in the presence of Christ and be an immersion in his word, not just to study for messages. Pray for me that I never just let my time and study for you be my time in the word of God before my master. If you see a pastor moving in that direction, confront him because he is, he is in danger of giving you academic messages that have not passed through the sluice gate of his soul. And, and he's not coming to you with an authentic broken walk with God that's private and that's real, even if he didn't ever have to preach again. He said, Pastor, don't be tempted to let your study be your devotion. Instead, develop a deeper private life where God's word and God's presence is your personal passion, not just your professional devotion. And it really struck me about how that temptation has been very strong in my life. He says, you need to understand that we all still have a flesh, a dimension of sin within us that is toggle switched to respond to the deception of the world. There's an illness in us that we constantly have to suppress. He likened devotional life to staying in dialysis treatment. I thought this was a great illustration. You may think it's weird, but you're used to me by now. Dialysis is necessary if you're a kidney patient. If you miss one week of dialysis I'm, told, dialysis, I'm told, toxins have begun to grow in your system and fluids have begun to be retained in your system that if you don't do something about it, could quickly infect you and maybe kill you. Dialysis has to be a religion. It has to be an always kept commitment. And he said, pastor, practice devotional dialysis. That was so good. Because I have flesh. I have dimensions of sin. I live in a cosmos, a world order that's committed to falsehood. It seeps into my system. It moves in my being. And I must constantly be devotionally dialysizing my life and my spirit and my mind. And so must you. You're a greater risk than me. I'm forced into this word by the role that I play in my profession. You are not necessarily forced into your word by the role you don't play in this profession. Oh, make a commitment now more than ever. Second, John goes on and he tells us that Jesus must be first as authority because he speaks divinely experienced truth. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. In other words, Jesus 
lived in truth in a different way than we do. We have to be taught truth. Jesus never had to be taught anything. He's eternal God. He simply is truth, and he has always experienced truth in its fullness. He commands truth. He hasn't just heard about it. Now, experience truth versus learn truth is something that a lot of preachers have taught their congregations about. Doubtless, you've heard the preacher's illustration. If I have to go under surgery, I'll take a C-plus surgeon over an A-plus medical student if I've got to go under the knife. And that's true. So would I, wouldn't you? I mean, there's, there's only a one-letter difference between the words skilled or killed, you know? <laughs> only one little word, one little letter, but very important. In the same way, Jesus Christ comes to us not as someone who has heard about truth, not as someone who's working out the truth, not as someone who's learned the truth from somebody else, but he comes as one who commands truth. The point of verse 32 is the authenticity of what Jesus knew. Jesus said, I am the truth. I never had to learn it. In fact, all that I know is something that I have rehearsed and recited over eternity with my father. Jesus said in John 3, 11, you speak about what you don't know is speaking to his enemies. I speak, literally, we speak of that which we do know. He's talking about the Holy Trinity. Jesus was, was a member of the Holy Trinity, eternal God. What has the Trinity always known? Truth. It's never had to learn truth. The Trinity is the truth. And for eternity in the past, he was always involved in the truth with the Father. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, says about John 3.11, he said, quote, this shows that Jesus was not a dreamer, a guesser, or a speculator. He was bearing witness from personal knowledge. The tense of the word indicates he's always held this knowledge and would never need to gain any more of it. It was a settled thing with him. Jesus is the truth. He's never had to develop it or experiment with it or grow in it. In fact, over all eternity, he has simply fellowshiped in that truth with the Father. That's why John 1, 2 said, when the scripture says, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Now that means that Jesus was eternal God. Was is a timeless imperfect in the Greek. It means Jesus had no beginning. When the earth was formed, Jesus had already, was already there. Why? Eternal God, everlasting God from the past. And notice he was with God. The Greek word meant interacting face to face with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What did they interact about long before the world was ever made? Angels ever were, were ever created? Satan ever made his presence known? Or you were ever a person on a planet? What did they talk about? They, they rejoiced in the truth. They rejoiced in each other. And out of that fellowship in heaven, Jesus one day stepped down into the planet. So when Jesus entered human life and communicated to people, he never lost that connection to truth that he had as a member of the Holy Trinity. This is important. Keep following me. When Jesus came to earth, his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit was not broken or lessened. You need to, we often think that because Jesus limited himself to the experience of a physical human life and a humbled human life, laying aside the use of many of his divine prerogatives, he chose not to use his power in many situations. It doesn't mean he didn't have his power. And he was limited in his human capacity. But we think he experienced a diminished level of fellowship with the Father, for example. As far as I can read in my Bible, that's not the case. The purity and power there of their relationship was unchanged when he was on earth teaching. Didn't Jesus say, I and the Father are one? 
Didn't Jesus say, I can only do what I see the Father doing? Didn't the Father say of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased? It sounds like perfect fellowship to me. See, the only thing that was different in in Christ's incarnation walk was the fact that he left the physical, visible sharing of the glory of heaven's throne room behind for 30-some years. That's why he prayed in John 17, the night before the cross, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the only thing that was temporarily set aside was the visible glory of heaven. Except when he was transfigured on the mountain, then the glory arrived again, you see. Jesus Christ is eternal God. He arrived on the planet and remained eternal God. Now, the conclusion is this. This is why I want you to stick with me. Jesus was the only preacher to ever walk the earth who spoke directly from the presence of the throne room. When you heard Jesus, you heard directly from the throne room. There was no filter. There was no lag time. There was not a drop call from God. When you heard from Jesus, you were hearing from God Almighty. Every time we looked into somebody's eyes and answered a question, they were hearing from God Almighty. Perfect truth. Every time he preached on a hillside or in a synagogue, when he preached, they were getting it. The the throne room was speaking. Can you imagine what an experience it must have been to those who had ears to hear, to hear Jesus preach, to be on the receiving end of 100% pure, white-hot, unapologetic throne room truth, truth arriving at the speed of light. This had to be what was happening when Jesus preached. Now imagine the impact of that. I mean, even from a human point of view, we all have been in situations when a person spoke up in a meeting or in a setting and they said something so profound and so right on point that there was silence in the room and everybody was thinking, wow, she's right. She she really gets it. It's perfectly said. And there's quiet silence as everybody knows. Think Abraham Lincoln on the on the platform delivering the Gettysburg Address and the silence that must have come over that crowd as they heard some of the most profound words of human leadership ever uttered. Or Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, generations later, who declared, I have a dream, and that captured for for that moment the great battle in, in human society in that respect. Well, that's the way it was every time Jesus preached. If you had ears to hear, he said. Jesus preached in the most powerful way any human being has ever done. And his audiences were either moved or mystified. You notice that Jesus very seldom, I don't think he ever left an ambivalent audience behind. People never just heard Jesus and and were unmoved. They were moved one way or the other. If they had ears to hear, they were moved to believe and repent and trust and follow If they were hardened in their hearts and didn't want the truth, truth of God, pardon me, they were simply mystified or bothered. When Jesus communicated, he had undeniable impact. People either said, never has a man spoken like this man, or they muttered to themselves, we're going to make sure this one never speaks again. Now, why is that? Because Jesus spoke throne room truth, and it came with absolute authority and power. 
So let me ask you, in your battle for truth in your life, in your taking in truth sources, in your evaluating what is said and what you're going to bank on in your world, how can you compare his truth to anyone else's? How can you? How can I? How can I proclaim anyone's truth as opposed to his alone? How can you trivialize the words of the master? How can you resist his commands or go to anyone else who might appeal to you more? Oh, resist it. He must be first because he speaks divinely sourced truth, truth that he commands, and that truth should command you and me. Will that be the walk of truth that you live in this coming year? in this magnetized mess of opinions and passions. Who will you hear above it all? Who will you respond to in spite of it all? Who will you go to in the midst of it all? Lastly, Jesus, he taught, must be first because Jesus speaks divinely disruptive truth. I've already alluded to this, that Jesus spoke for a verdict. He spoke to the mind and the heart. He didn't speak to the preferences. And when he spoke, it was divinely disruptive. John speaks of it in verse 32 in the last phrase. Yet no one receives his testimony, even though his preaching came from the throne room and always does. It seems as though no one receives his testimony, John said. Now, what did he mean? Obviously, he was not speaking literally because there were people who responded to Jesus. In fact, at this point, early in Christ's ministry in John 3, many were responding and being baptized, so much so that John's disciples were intimidated and became insecure. So John wasn't saying no one listened to Jesus. He was basically using the literal tool of hyperbole to make a clear point though many did respond most didn't you see it john was amazed that someone could come with this purity this holiness this throne room authority and when people have seen it and heard it no one it seemed on on balance received his testimony some received but most didn't People would listen and then reject his message as they thought about it in their own mental frame and their preferences and their biases And they would go on to try a grab at another ring on the carousel of belief, just like so many people do today with the message of Jesus Christ. So it seemed to John that no man received his witness. You see, Jesus never preached to be received. He preached to be rejected or believed. He never preached to appeal to people's preferences. He preached directly to the heart and to the will, and he preached for decision, not for approval. In fact, he was the least politically correct prophet in all of history. I mean, you think about it. When Jesus preached that no one comes to the Father but through me, people in those crowds must have nudged each other and thought, well, he doesn't have a very good sense of religious politics. Doesn't he understand how offensive that is to people with other belief systems? That doesn't seem like a good way to win people. And today, when Jesus is preached, and somebody like me quotes him as saying, I am the way, people respond in the same way. That's offensive to people that I would know. Well, that's why Jesus is offensive to what I call a pluralized society. That's what we are, aren't we? 
Because of William James and all the rest, everybody's opinion has authority. Everybody's belief system must be true, even though it entirely contradicts other belief systems. No, there is one revealed truth, one revealed God. And so Jesus is offensive today to our pluralized culture. But Jesus also preached, deny yourself and follow me. And when he did that, boy, did the crowds thin out. They said, this is too hard for us. They say, we need a religion that will take care of us because we're hurting right now. And Jesus, as he's preached today, is the one that says, deny yourself and follow me. He offends our therapized society, doesn't he? We're living in a society that's swim, swimming for the last 50 years in the great truth that what's more important than anything else is how you feel. What you're experiencing. What you fear. How you feel in your life about yourself and about your future. Oh, Jesus spoke into a therapized society then and more so now. Don't expect them to be popular. Jesus preached it. He said, lay up your treasure in heaven and follow me. Abandon your material dreams. People nudged each other on the hillside and said, well, it's not too practical, is he? Who'd really want to do that? That's exactly the point. See, Jesus, as he's preached today, would offend our materialized society. That's why so many evangelicals said, well, it's actually more important that my, my son gets a good job as opposed to whether he finds Christ. What's happened? We've been listening to the other people on the hillside and not responding to the master. We're a materialized generation. And Jesus declared to his audiences, you must lose your life in order to find it. And people would say, oh, he's lost me. That's just too hard. And if he's preached that way today, he offends our idolized society because nothing is more important than your personal peace and affluence, your personal life and dreams, your personal goals and vision, what you want to happen in your life. You'll never lay it down for a God who might have a different plan. And Jesus said that's exactly what you have to do to fully follow this God. Oh, Jesus did not preach for approval. He preached for decision. He preached divinely sourced, eternally experienced truth straight to the heart, and he demanded a verdict. Now, when he did that, something curious became clear. You see in the Gospels that result-minded people rarely became his followers. The leaders of the culture didn't become his followers. The wealthy and, and the driven didn't become his followers. The influential and the ambitious did not become his followers. But like the rich young ruler, they turned away. Because result-minded people are focused on their own focused and opinion-driven life. They still felt they had life wired. And they just needed some final principles to kind of get this down. And maybe they'll borrow some principles from Jesus. Jesus wasn't there for you to borrow some of his principles. He was there for you to give him your life. No result-minded people rarely became his followers as he preached. But here's the interesting thing. People who were no longer satisfied with just results flocked to him. Because they were at a point in life where they didn't want, just want some principles to make their life work better. They wanted something better than a nice life. They wanted a taste of God. They wanted a taste of God. They were on the hunt for him. 
Think of the blind man that Jesus healed so miraculously, and it was so well known. And Jesus sent the blind man to testify to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the wired ones, about the fact that he'd been healed by Jesus, the Messiah. How did they respond? Not with joy, not with with wonder. They responded with questions and tons of hostility, didn't they? Because he threatened the very truth system they were trying to live out in their own life and their own power. But the blind man, on the other hand, had no questions at all, just a ton of humility. His only response was, all I know is, I once was blind, but now I see, and I want to follow King Jesus. That's the great illustration of the impactful teaching of Christ upon proud hearts or ready hearts, which are you. Not only when you come to Christ, but as you walk with Christ, you've got to revisit that reality all the time. Now, if you do, you'll be among the members of the group that John describes in verse 33. With this, I close. Whoever receives his testimony, verse 32, he says, it seems like no one receives his testimony. I know that few do, most won't, but of the few that do, whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In other words, when you do decide to give your life to Christ, when you do decide to let him be your truth teller and the only truth teller in your world, when you do decide to trust his salvation message, when you do decide to allow him to be the Lord of your life and the Lord of your days, and you continue to submit to him in growing, humble, willing discipleship as you walk with him through your life what do you discover that everything he ever said to you is true and you'll set your seal to it what's that phrase mean in the time in which this gospel was written in the first century when someone sent a a letter to someone else in order for the person who received it to know it was authentic the person who wrote the letter would seal the outside of it with a piece of sealing wax a little dollop of wax on it and then he would take his signet ring or the family seal and push the push push the image into it of the sender and so when you got that letter and you saw the sealed image you know that the sender had said his seal to it that this is true this is coming from me you can trust it John is saying, for all those that have received the testimony of Jesus, they'll set their seal to this, that this is true. He is true. He is trustworthy. He never deceives. He is the source of all truth in my life. I set my seal to it every day, every moment, every matter, every decision, every footstep. This is the great arrival of truth in the life of the true believer. John was saying that in every generation, there are a select few who are on the hunt for God. And when they hear the words of Jesus, they know in a moment that he speaks divinely sourced truth, eternally experienced with the Father, striking straight to the heart and convicting the soul, and they follow him. And when they do, with every step of obedience in their lives, they set their seal to this, that what he promised came true, what he asks us to do is right, and the blessing from obeying him is deep and worth my life. And so, how about you? 
Have you decided to put the words of Christ first in your life? You see, that's a decision that has to be recommitted to not just daily, not just hourly, but momentarily. Particularly in the year and the years ahead. There will be a battle over the authority of God's ultimate truth and the response of your life to it like you have never known. Have you decided to put the words of Jesus first in your life, no matter what? Do you believe that he speaks divine truth, eternally experienced, that disrupts your easily deceived heart and leads you on the path of life? And will you live in that this year? Will you set your seal to it? I invite you to lean into this coming year with this deeper intention in your life. And I want you to begin it today by experiencing communion. I want you to begin it by making communion a reminder of his greatest promise that he came as Savior at a place of deeper commitment to live in his words.